This morning we're going to be looking at uh, Mark chapter 8, and so while I, whilst I introduce what I'm going to talk about this morning, if you look that up in your Bibles or your didgeridoos or whatever, and uh, Mark chapter 8, uh, chapters, uh, verses 22 to the end of Mark chapter 8. So it's good that, uh, that uh, Kyron talked about the way that um, the song we were just singing about, the way that Jesus makes the darkness tremble. Because this morning I'm going to be talking about uh, a woman who lived in darkness most of her life. But uh, before that, I, I'm just going to talk about what I'm going to say. I'm talking about taking risks and sharing our faith in Jesus this morning. And... Uh, you know, as you get, get older, and um, I first came to Parkland's Baptist in 1982, came to faith in 1980, I think it was, that you just become accustomed to the way things are in life, and you can tinker at the fringes, but at the core, um, you just assume that things subconsciously will always remain the way things are. And as you get older in your faith, you realise you don't need a pat on the back when things get tough. You actually need a kick in the pants. And um, as I've grown older, I realise there's times in my life when I really need to be rocked to actually question the status quo. So uh, a, couple of, a couple of stories I heard last year um, really made me think about, hey, what have I become? And... Um, a couple of stories. So we're going to look at uh, Mark chapter 8, verses 23 32 to 38. So I'll read those. And I, yeah, we'll read those. If everybody's got their didgeridoos going and all their Bibles open, yeah, that's even better having your Bibles open. Didgeridoos come and go. So anyway, um, Jesus cures a blind man at Bethesda. They came to Bethesda. Some people brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he put saliva on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Can you see anything? And the man looked up and said, I can see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he looked intently, and his sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. Then he sent him away to his home, home, saying, Do not even go to the village. Jesus went on with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist, and others Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Messiah or the Christ. And he sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. 
He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. But those who want to lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their own soul? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and my words and this adulterous and sinful generation of them, the Son of Man, will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. So Mark chapter 8, verses 23 to 28. So how am I going to talk this morning? How am I going to say it? I'm going to be talking about two stories I heard. And then we'll talk about this passage of Mark and have a brief look at the expectations of Messiah in Jesus' day and how they responded and how the disciples responded to them, including uh, Peter's reaction. So Mark's Gospel is quite a simple little book, really. And uh, I'm a simple person, and I look at things in quite a simple sort of way. And... uh, so when we look at this necklace here, and I'm not going, don't want to become a Labour Party coalition cabinet minister, so I won't be wearing this. So uh, we have two ends to it, and Mark's gospel has two end, has beginning and has an end. And uh, Mark says right at the beginning, he said, the gospel, of, uh, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So he says that's the beginning. And then he starts talking about John the Baptist, how John the Baptist appears on the scene after 400 years of silence, uh, prophetic silence. And at the very, towards the very end, uh, chapter 15, uh, the Roman centurion is with Jesus when he dies on the cross. And he says, surely this man was the son of God. So Mark starts off with the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and then the person who crucifies Jesus says that surely this man was God's son. But in between, we have this is the very centre of, of Mark's Gospel that we're looking at today. This, this part here is the very, if you want to call it, the theological centre of Mark. But one of the interesting ways of looking at the structure of a book is to look at the sequencing of the stories. And so this, uh, this first part looks at an understanding of Jesus' glory, the first part, uh, uh, right up to this point. And it's talking about gaining an understanding that Jesus is God. He is the exact radiance of the glory of God the, uh, and sustains all things by his powerful word, that Jesus is God. He's the outshining of all that God is. That's the glory of God. And so nothing more, nothing less. But the second part it talks about how it gives us an understanding of the necessity of Jesus' suffering. So these little, all these little stories, like these beads, they lead up to a point. And, the, and Mark is not so much writing a book as he's editing the stories. So all these little stories are leading to this point. And the other little stories are leading to the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. 
So he's, he's like an editor. It's like the news that you get on TV. There's a person who decides what stories go on the news. And so if you watch the news repeatedly, you can, uh, day after day, you can see how the stories are leading to a point. The editor wants you to understand a particular perspective on something. So the gospel writers are editors as much as, as, um, as story writers in and of themselves. So the first task gives, gives us an understanding of Jesus' glory through all those stories. And the second part talks about how, how Jesus must suffer. And Peter is really wrestling with the fact that Jesus must suffer. So a friend of mine uh, led a small group, uh, youth group in a very small church in Christchurch some years ago. He wasn't the most ideal of uh, youth group leaders. He was significantly older than his, uh, the people that he was leading. And he wasn't a particularly charismatic person in terms of charm. But he actually, was, he and his wife were very keen on sharing their faith. And so there was a couple of people in this very small youth group who were quite keen themselves. They were quite enthusiastic about it. I love that word enthusiastic because it may, basically it means God's in it. In theos. It's a lovely word. Every time I hear it, I think, oh God, God, are you in this? Are you in th-? So somebody's enthusiastic, you're saying, oh God, are you in this? But anyway, uh, these two rough and tumble characters were quite keen on sharing their faith. And it was pretty simple. All they did was talk about how, what God had done in their lives and that God loved people and he loved them so much that he sent Jesus to die on the cross on their behalf and that God has a plan for their lives. Simple as that. So they, they, they shared this and God was in it. And there was an, quite a number of people who were significantly influenced by their witness and testimony. And they came too to share these two people's faith in Jesus over the years. And as they went on to adulthood, this enthusiasm didn't diminish. And so marriage and kids and this sort of stuff didn't diminish their enthusiasm. And one of them uh, decided that uh, I need to actually get some upskill here. So rather than going to Bible college, he, did, he uh, made contact with a person who spoke to smaller groups rather than one-on-one. So he got some training from this fellow and time went by. And then this fellow said, hey, listen, I've been doing a series of talks, but I've got the last ones coming up. Do you want to come along and have it and watch? How do I do it? He's like, oh, yeah, I'll come along. So he went along and uh, he sat down and um, there was a young woman came and sat beside him, leading another young woman whose eyes were covered up and, uh, you know, being sort of a cheeky, sort of rough and tumble sort of guy. You don't know until you have a go, do you? He said, oh, what's wrong with the person next to you? And she said, oh, she's my sister. She was born blind. And uh, she's only got whites in her eyes and little dots. And people get really embarrassed when they see her eyes. And we get quite embarrassed. And she feels shame. And uh, anyway, so he... So, yeah, you know, that's not too good, you know. And so anyway, as time went on, he thought, oh, well, you don't know until you have a go, do you? He said, oh, can I pray? Pray for your, your sister. 
And she said, oh, okay, okay. So they took off the coverings of her eyes and exposed the whites. And there's little red dots there, tiny red dots. So anyway, he prayed. Like Jesus praying for this blind man here, prayed for him. Didn't put his hand on her eyes, but just prayed. And nothing happened. It's uh, fairly rough, you know, a bit embarrassing, isn't it? Taking a risk like that. So he said, okay. Do you mind if I pray again and put my hands on her? And she said, oh, okay. And so he prayed and nothing happened. What do you do? So anyway, he said, oh, okay, give her one more go. And then he reminded, uh, he was reminded of the prayer of Jesus when he was praying for blind Bartimaeus in the 12th chapter of uh, Mark. Jesus, son of God, have mercy on this girl. Nothing happened. And it came from his guts. It didn't come from his head. It came from his guts, this prayer. And then, okay, she started to scream. And uncontrollable screaming. And then there happened to be a medical professional there. And she, this medical professional came over and said, oh, you need to cover up her eyes. And he says, why? Because her brain cannot comprehend what she's seeing. Her sight was rest- that she never had was manifest in her eyes. And she couldn't cope with the colours. said, oh, you'll only be able to take the covering off her eyes for minutes, for months, because she's never seen anything before. She had a sight. It's amazing, isn't it? It's an incredible story. When he told me this, I thought, oh, yeah, I'd like to believe what I'm hearing here, but I'm not sure. So I tracked the guy down. I said, what's the story? And he told me the exact same facts. He said, I've been around long enough that you cannot exaggerate anything when it comes to God's work. It doesn't, doesn't do you any good. It comes back to bite you in the bum. So anyway, he took a risk. So, Peter and his compatriots had an expectation of Messiah. So, Messiah is the Hebrew word, the same word for, for Christ in Greek, and it means anointed one. And basically, the Old Testament people of God came to anticipate a person anointed would come. And it basically means somebody who's called and enabled. Anointed means called and enabled. This person would be anointed by the Spirit of God who would function again as a king and a priest over Israel. So they were looking for an ideal King David to come again. And somebody who would go in between uh, themselves and God. The ideal priest. The anticipated person would be a descendant of King David And they would be endowed with special powers and functions by God to rule Israel, set it free from its oppressors, because there had been a lot of people in uh, in the immediate times leading up to uh, Peter who had claimed to be the Messiah or have messianic pretensions, and they had been defeated by the Romans and the Greeks before them, and so their uh, expectations were diminished. And so they'd set them free from their oppressors and they'd usher in a new age 
which would be the virtual ending of history. So they had huge expectations of this priest-king figure, this ideal King David. Although Jesus allows eventual recognition that he is Messiah, he rejects the title and what was its most common traditional sense, that of being a warrior king. One of the, uh, one of the titles of God in the Old Testament is the, is the, is the name Yahweh Sabaoth. It basically means Lord of Hosts or Lord of Armies. I think it's about 143 times it's used in the Old Testament. And Jesus is the exact representation of God's being. That Jesus is the Lord of Armies. Jesus is the Lord of Armies. And uh, he could have brought the armies of heaven to bear on the situation in his life, but he chose not to. In actual fact, he told the disciples, now don't tell anybody about this, you know. Don't tell anybody about this. It was called the Messianic Secret. Right up until this point. And it was that, hey, you don't know about the suffering yet. So you haven't got the full story. You know about the glory, but the suffering's to come. Because it's, it's the suffering that will give you the big picture. So when he accepts the title, he immediately qualifies it in the light of his mission to suffer and begins to talk of the nature of discipleship. Jesus talks about the nature of discipleship after this moment because he wants us to understand the nature of the call that's upon our lives. Yes, we reign with Jesus, but we also need to be aware of suffering. The Old Testament does not contain a single example of a person being healed of blindness. That was solely the domain of Messiah. That all changed with coming of Jesus, and this ability proved his identity. So his ability to actually heal the blind person proved his identity. That's why it was the last bead on that necklace before asking Peter, who do I say that I am? The Old Testament people of God understood that the coming Messiah would be identified as the one who would give sight to the blind, both spiritually and physically. Like in Isaiah, Mark is based heavily on the book of Isaiah. I, the Lord, in chapter 42, he says, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness, talking about the servant, that is Jesus the suffering servant who is to come. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open the eyes of the blind, and so on. As the news of Jesus spread throughout Judea and Galilee, John, sent two, uh, the, uh, John the Baptist sent two disciples to ask Jesus about his identity. Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect another? This is why, while John the Baptist was waiting in prison to be beheaded. Or should we expect somebody else? Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you see and hear. The blind receive their sight. Jesus also speaking to the disciples here, not just to the blind person. See, the disciples didn't get it. They, they were spiritually blind. They had to, they, they had, 
This moment had to occur for them to begin to appreciate what discipleship was about. It's about following the suffering servant who happens to be a king as well. And so three times in this immediate context, Jesus says of the disciples, you do not understand, you just don't get it. They were spiritually blind as well as the person who was uh, physically blind. The physically blind man not being healed immediately paralleled the disciples' spiritual blindness as to Jesus' true identity. When Peter does acknowledge Jesus' identity, he cannot still uh, accept Jesus' suffering and as such echoes Satan's temptations in the desert, in Jesus' desert experience. So he wants to prove his... uh, Sorry... He wants his identity to be proved by acts that were ultimately self-serving. So the devil said, I know know you're God's son, just go and prove it. Just go and prove it. But he wanted him to prove by virtue of acts that were ultimately self-serving, ones that bypassed the cross. As, as, um, as, As Messiah Jesus refused a kingship that had no cross, a discipleship that cost you and I nothing is ultimately worth nothing to us. I've got this. McDonald's never give away anything. Have you noticed that? Like if you buy one of those old plastic toys, you have to buy one because they know that's, that something that costs you nothing ultimately is worth nothing. And a discipleship that costs us nothing ain't worth anything to us. So the second story... It's a true story. There's one of these people was in a bank and they were in a queue at a bank waiting to be served. And a young woman goes past, it's in a shopping mall, goes past the bank. And as this person looked at her, thought, hmm, queue's a bit long. Something about it. So he went up to her and said, do you know that God loves you? He's got a plan for your life. She told him to go away. So he's standing in the queue again, goes back to the counter, oh, right here. So she's still you know, hanging around, looking at this and that. So I said, oh, no, got it. So again, do you know that Jesus loves you and has a plan for your life? And she told him to go away in a very explicit term. So he goes back to the goes back to the queue again, and he's like, "Oh no, I'll give it a go." So he goes over. He's not a clue what to say, and Jesus said, "He gave us the words when we had to be a test to me." So he said to her, "Do you know God loves you and has a plan of your life? And that child you aborted last year is with Jesus in heaven." The woman fell to the ground beside herself between one and five sorry between five and six pregnancies in New Zealand result in a termination she falls to the ground and is now a disciple of Jesus is found in church life and in a small group how incredible is that that is absolutely incredible but he took a risk this is extreme stuff Okay, but what risks do we take in life? Do we, 
when do we put it on the line? It's not in a building program. It's not in a building program. And this happened in Christchurch. So let's read the text again and then Ellen's going to come and uh, share communion with us. Jesus cures a blind man in Bethesda. They came to Bethesda. Some people brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he put saliva on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, can you see anything? And the man looked up and said, I can see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again and looked intently and his sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. Then he sent him away to his home saying, do not even go into the village. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist, and others, Elijah, and still others, one of, the, one of the prophets. He asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Messiah or the Christ. And he sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wants to be, become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose, lose their life for my sake and for the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words and this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. Ellen. Yeah.